Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, which is the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute on this program. We discuss the complex issues and events that are shaping our world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Objectivism is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. As you can see on the screen next to me, if you'd like to learn more about our journal or about our ideas, best way to do that is to go to our website, which is at newideal.einrand.org. If you're watching on social media channels today, like YouTube and Facebook, that's great. Though uh, one way to interact with us more directly is through Zoom. You can go to zoom.us slash join and join the meeting ID 812-506-718. Though I should also mention that we're continuing uh, our experiment with Super Chat. And so I will be I will be monitoring the Super Chat on YouTube, and I see already Mary Aline has given us a, a, a generous donation. If you'd like to support our YouTube channel, a great way to do this is to donate to get your question to the top of the queue on YouTube in Super Chat. Uh, so I should mention then that uh, the event of the day that we're discussing is, uh, the topic is of monuments and men erecting and tearing down public statues. This is I'm shortly going to be joined by my colleague at ARI, Ankar Gatte, and also Greg Salmieri will be joining us too. So bring them on now. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Greg. Hi. Hi. So this controversy about the statues has been ongoing for many years now, but has really reached ahead uh, in the wake of the George Floyd protests as those who are opposed to statues of uh, controversial figures, especially Confederate figures, have actually gone about physically removing them, often illegally, sometimes with the assistance of government. And just to quantify this a little bit, uh, according to a Washington Post article that I found uh, July 7th, since the beginning of the George Floyd protests, there have been about 150 of these statues torn down around the country, either by protesters or, uh, as they put it in the article, removed for safekeeping by local governments, governments who were, I guess, anticipating that protesters might try to take them down. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the numbers are uh, on statues that are sponsored uh, by private institutions, though there's, there's been a push uh, for them to voluntarily remove them as well. Now, the same Washington Post article that I mentioned, the uh, same Washington Post article that I mentioned, mentioned that uh, most of the statues that have been taken down have been statues of Confederate figures or uh, someone like uh, Christopher Columbus. There have been a few cases, there were three at least, in which the statues targeted by protesters were those of founding fathers, uh, such as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and in one case, Ulysses S. Grant. Now that's just the numbers on the statues that have actually been taken down. I suspect the numbers are even larger if you're talking about vandalism, painting, other kinds of desecration of the statues. Now, Ankar and Greg, this is a, a very complicated and complicated topic in a lot of ways uh, because there's a lot of different aspects and different questions that you can ask about this controversy. And one of the things that I want to focus our discussion on today is trying to untangle the different questions and uh, the different ways in which they cut. So, uh, there's a question about a general question about which kind of historical figures 
are worthy of, of any kind of veneration, whether it's in the form of a, a statue, private or public, or any other kind. There's then the question of who, if anyone, should have public statues erected uh, of them. There's the question of supposing that there have been mistaken venerations, especially if they're in public form, how should public mistakes like that be corrected? And there's probably a few others we're going to talk about as well. Um, but let's, let's start with, I guess, one of the more immediate political questions. Now, one of the things we'll talk about is, is, is who these figures are and, and whether they should be venerated. But supposing, just for the sake of argument, that there are figures who shouldn't have had uh, sculptures erected of them, there's still a question of what's the right way to take these down. And the, way, the reason that we're talking about this today, the reason that this is in the news, is because they've been taken down by violent mobs in many cases. So uh, I, I think that's a pretty bad way to do it. What do you guys think? Uh, what are your thoughts on the ways these should be taken down, if at all? Well, outside of the context of an actual revolution, nothing should be done by a violent mob. There shouldn't be violent mobs, and it counts as violence if it's destroying other people's property. Violence isn't just if you punch someone in the face, if you break their window or tear down their statue, that's violence too. So, I, I mean, I think even to call it mobs or violent mobs answers the question for any uh, anyone who cares about civilization. And um, But if we're talking about how should it be decided whether something should be taken down and who should decide, it really depends whose statue it is. And it's not just statues. I mean, there's been um, uh, questions about whether um, the uh, Washington and Lee University should change its name. Um, Princeton has changed the name of the Woodrow Wilson, you know, several things that were named for Woodrow Wilson. Um, uh, University of Texas, where I am, is changing the name of one of its schools that was named after a professor who was apparently um, work to keep blacks out of his classes and so forth. So there are, you know, all kinds of institutions, state and private and otherwise that, um, you know, might want to change who they're venerating. And I think it's, um, if it was wrong to venerate someone in the first place, whether with a statue or naming someone after them, or whether it was wrong or, or right in the first place, you not now find that it's inconsistent with your present values. And you think your present values are right and appropriate and they're objective then I think it's right to change the name, to take down the statue, um, you know, move it someplace else or take it off public display. But it, it has to be the choice of the organization involved, whether it's a private university and, and uh, or a public. If it's a public institution, then we have a, a role to play there as voters, but not a role to play there as a group organized for direct action. And if it's not a public institution, then I think we have a role as you know, we can suggest if we're a customer, we could boycott if we're really offended by, um, uh, you know, a particular symbol. And on the issue of the mob action, if you took, if you really took it seriously that anybody who objects to some kind of public action, so if we're talking particularly about statues, other memorabilia on public land or public institutions, if you, if it's, if I'm a member of the public so that I can then go onto these places and say, well, this is what I want to do and I, I don't want the statue up, so I'm going to topple it. That would extend to anything. I mean, today going on in Congress, they're, they're using the antitrust laws 
to investigate some of America's most successful business people. I really, really object to this. I object to the antitrust laws. It doesn't give me a claim that I can go into government buildings, throw desks out the window because they're involved in prosecuting these laws and they're part of this antitrust establishment. I can do various things, agitate, vote for candidates, propose different legislation and so on. But there's a vast, vast difference between operating within the legally formulated process by which government decisions are made and changed and saying, I can operate outside of that and my whim gets to rule. Well, let me ask a devil's advocate question here. And I, I do think it's a devil's advocate question because I've seen some people say that the Boston Tea Partiers uh, used basically mob violence in order to launch the American Revolution. And don't we venerate them? And so if if there's a equivalent uh, form of injustice being perpetrated here, why shouldn't a mob uh, do the same kind of thing as the Tea Partiers did? But they were precisely initiating a revolution. I mean, it wasn't there wasn't yet a declaration of independence, but this was a step on the way to a revolution. And I think it was seen by people as things are building to this point, and many of those people wanted a revolution already. Some of them, you know, soon uh, were agitating for it. Uh, so if what you're doing is you're toppling a statue in the run-up to a revolution, you want there to be a revolution. If I'm a guy who doesn't want that statue up, right, I can't take this as, oh, he's on my side, he's doing the right thing, he's taking the statue down. I have to think, is by toppling the statue in this manner, he's saying it's time for revolution. Do I agree with that? I might agree to voting the statue down, but be uh, not agree to revolution. And I can't take it as an anti-statue or anti-Confederate message. I have to take it as a pro-revolution message. And by the way, it's not just new in the wake of the George Floyd thing. It's intensified, but University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill had a statue called Silent Sam for decades there. It was a Confederate soldier. And when I taught there, I thought like, weird, what is this Confederate soldier doing on this university campus? I, I didn't like it there. And I wished they'd take it down. And there were some petitions too and so forth. But uh, eventually it got toppled by a crowd just um, a couple of years ago, uh, but certainly before the, the George Floyd thing. And I suspect that we could have a, we could have a separate conversation about whether it would be a good idea to have or start a revolution. I, I suspect that at least many people in our audience wouldn't want the, the, the folks who are currently pushing for one to happen. And probably for good reason, we could talk about how uh, if you're going to start a revolution, you should have some good idea of how it's going to end, what's the, what's, what's the ideal that you're fighting for, and it's not clear what, if any, good ideal this uh, current mob is, is actually fighting for. And um, well, if you're gonna, let me just say one other thing then on that, in terms of thinking about the American Revolution, you have to think it wasn't just things like the Tea Party. I mean, so there's the, the states meet and decide we're gonna declare independence and so on. It's not just, it, like it's wrong to think of it as there was some kind of mob action and the mob action was, well, this is, we're now taking revolutionary steps. The real revolutionary step is this formal declaration of independence. And it's legitimate to think of them as speaking for the people, as, as their representatives and so on. And you can't just have some mob go around and say, 
okay, now we're taking a revolutionary step and we're committing everyone to revolution. So, and that's not the way to think, I think, of the American Revolution. So, Greg, you, you mentioned that uh, there was a, a Confederate statue on uh, the UNC campus that you didn't like. Um, one question here is, uh, what are our standards for which kinds of figures should be venerated? Now, this is a question we can talk about whether we're talking about public statues or private statues. What does it actually mean to put a figure of somebody on a pedestal? And then uh, what does it mean to remove it? What, are, what standards should guide our thinking in uh, uh, this kind of situation? Well, the UNC case was actually interesting because it was not a particular figure. It wasn't Jefferson Davis. It was a sort of a person representing um, an everyman Confederate soldier. And part of the point was that so many UNC students had fought in the war. Um, but if you look at the dedication and some of the poetry on it, it was glorifying of, of the cause. And I thought that was wrong and troubling because it's an evil cause. Um, in the case of the Confederate statues, I mean, we, we talk a lot about, and uh, the objectivists have talked a lot about, and you've seen right-wingers, which I don't think we are, talk a lot about, um, the way it's taken for granted that Nazism is evil. You can just use it as a symbol of evil. You could have a movie about it. Uh, and you, they're obviously the bad guys, but that's not the same with communism. I mean, everyone says, yes, Stalin was bad, but it's not uh, to call someone a communist uh, is, or a socialist is not seen as like calling them a Nazi, even though this is another murderous evil ideology. Uh, I view confederatism as in the same group. This is an, a thing that it, the whole movement, the whole thing it existed for was to break up the United States of America in order to preserve the worst element in the United States of America, slavery, which is as evil as any institution can be, uh, from the encroachment by the better elements in America, by the essence of America, which was gradually on its way to uprooting it. So this is, I think, a really evil movement, and it has to be treated in the same way that you would treat uh, Nazism or communism. And uh, a statue celebrating not just somebody who incidentally uh, was involved in the Confederacy. Maybe he's being celebrated for something else. We could talk about whether that's okay. But someone whose claim to fame historically is that he was a general, a political leader of the Confederacy. Um, what you're doing in that statue is celebrating that act, that aspect of that person. You're making a hero of someone for doing something evil. And we should think about wh what the meaning of a statue is. Is like, what is it celebrating? Because they celebrate or commemorate things. And what is being commemorated? And what's being commemorated by all the statues of Lee uh, is the fight to keep black people slaves. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the Confederate figures and statues then, because one of the things that a lot of people who defend these statues will say is they're not there to celebrate slavery. The people who support the statues don't believe in slavery. They claim that they're not racists. They may even concede that the Confederacy deserved to lose the Civil War, but they still think it's worth venerating them because they say these are representatives of something like Southern heritage and history. Uh, what do you think of that argument? But it's I mean, specifically what is the Southern heritage of enslaving Black people and the history of keeping them as slaves and fighting to keep that uh, system going. I mean, you could just as well say, we should have statues of Goebbels all around because they commemorate German history. Ankar, were you gonna say something? 
Yeah, so I was going to say that the heritage is, well, I mean, what Greg said, the heritage here is that we had slavery and we worked and fought to preserve the institution of slavery. And I think it's important to get that this is not just a few statutes. Um, so I, I'm an outsider, so I'm not even American, I'm Canadian. And it was relatively late in life that I've experienced the South of the US. I live in Virginia now. And uh, I mean, my first time in Virginia, I did some, in Richmond, I did some tour tourism kind of stuff. And the tour guide was speaking the, the war of Northern aggression, the, this whole standard line of elevating the South and the North was the problem. And if only they weren't so meddlesome and so, and this is the tour, like this is, and it wasn't some obscure tour or something like this. And it's, you see statues, you see, there's so many roads there. I mean, there's Lee highway close to where I live. There's schools, there's a Lee High School close to where I live. There's hotels, the Stonewall Jackson Inn to one of the places I go in Virginia. So, so the commemoration of the Confederacy is all over the place. It's hard to miss. It's not like you have to walk up and look at some statue and okay, here's some celebration of the Confederacy. It's sort of taken for granted. It's not that everybody focuses on it, but it's widespread and I've been surprised by how widespread it is. And I'm not even in the deep south. I'm at, at a sort of border state in that sense. Um, and it's that it's passed for, yeah, this is okay for so long that it hasn't been thought like there's something really objectionable here. I mean, that was my experience when I came in. Like, what the hell? Like, how can there be this much commemoration of it? Um, that there hasn't been that reaction tells you something about sort of the whole atmosphere and the whole thinking about this issue that I find problematic. Oh. I think that if you, can, if you can give the best case that you can for the idea of valuing the history or the heritage of a place, it would be something like, well, looking at the good things that have happened in this place in the past and, and celebrating them. And so, yeah, then the question becomes, well, which aspect of Southern history are these statues actually venerating? And a, a good example that I like to give here is uh, the Confederate statues that were in New Orleans, where I used to live for almost a decade, which were taken down just a couple of years ago. And there were three, there were four prominent statues that were taken down. So one was Jefferson Davis, who had no connection to the city except that he died there. There was, uh, there was Robert E. Lee who visited once uh, and it wasn't a statue of the kindly retired General Lee as he was the president of a college. He was in full battle regalia and facing north uh, in defiance of the Union. And then there was a statue of P.T. Beauregard who was from New Orleans and who actually uh, reformed his views in later days. but. Uh, he's pictured again in battle regalia on a horse. So it's it, it's pretty clear that these were, uh, I won't even, I mean, the fourth statue wasn't a statue of anybody in particular. It was a, a, an obelisk erected to commemorate the rebellion of the White League in 1874, where the uh, opposition to the Reconstruction government tried to take over the state. Uh, and they eventually lost, but they killed a bunch of uh, Union soldiers. And then they were the real predecessors to the repeal of Reconstruction 
later in the 1870s. Uh, and that monument didn't get taken down until 2016 or 17. Um, so the, you, could, there's a, you can make a case for a value uh, to heritage and history, but well, which aspect are you valuing here? And yeah, I think it, not only were these figures who were standing up to defend a state that was trying to preserve the institution of slavery, but they were traitors to the Union. They were traitors to the United States. And for, for people who are usually kind of flag-waving and patriotic, isn't it a little odd that uh, they make this big exception uh, to uh, celebrate or uh, defend the celebration of people who trampled on the flag and who trampled on the values of the Union. Well, it's worse that they're flag-waving and patriotic but making this exception because so many people wave these two flags together. And when you wave these two flags together, it makes me think you're not making an exception for this treason to America you think this treason is what America's about. Um, and then I don't, I think it totally negates, I don't believe you know what the Stars and Stripes are about uh, or what I value about them or what Thomas Jefferson or George Washington um, or Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass or any of the real American patriots are about. If you can, uh, you know, uh, in one breath mention the Stars and Stripes and the Stars and Bars as uh, meaning anything like the same thing. And I have the same view of, and imagine what the reaction would be if um, Americans of Japanese descent put up, and so the, the best argument, and I don't think it's a good argument that I've heard for the statues is what, what, about what they celebrate, is that they celebrate military expertise, that Lee was a good leader and so on, Stonewall Jackson's. Um, imagine if they put up all kinds of statues in commemoration of the Japanese generals, the suicide bombers for their courage and so on. You would view that as abhorrent, and it is. I mean, they're killing American soldiers, and you're going to put up, you're going to commemorate this. And I don't find any difference between if that were done and the, the statues in commemoration of the Confederacy. And you brought up uh, in New Orleans, it's important to get, particularly for the statues, that there was a whole movement that was pushing these things as a way, as part of trying to reconstruct the image of the South and the reputation of the South and to glorify it. And, so, and that makes it even worse, that it, this is a whole movement that's trying to whitewash history. Yeah, on that, I actually uh, have a little anecdote. Uh, when the Lee statue was initially installed in New Orleans in 1884, the local paper, the Daily Picayune, uh, wrote an article explaining why they favored the erection of the statue. And here's what they said. We cannot ignore the fact that the secession has been stigmatized as treason and that the purest and bravest men in the South have been denounced as guilty of a shameful crime. By every application of literature and art, we must show to all coming ages that with us, at least, there dwells no sense of guilt. Uh, and, and this is, of course, after uh, Reconstruction governments have been removed and they're saying, no, we don't want to apologize for secession. It's just worth keeping in mind how, how much evasion there was over the course of the, of the 20th century of the evil of the Confederacy and how much apologism for the ongoing segregation in the South up through 
the sixties, and um, we could talk about how that ended. And there were, I think, the the details of the way segregation was ended were, was wrong, but uh, it needed to be ended, and there was too much evasion of it. And if you think about in the nineteen teens, in the nineteen twenties, you know, the, um, you had uh, Woodrow Wilson as president, uh, someone who um, Princeton recently renamed things from, who was, uh, in addition to being a horrible president in almost every respect, and the kind of a progenitor of progressivism and so forth, uh, an incredible racist. He, he was showing Birth of a Nation, a film glorifying the KKK. And notice this was one of the first seen as great films in America, right? So it's part of our art heritage of uh, this film based on a novel called The Klansman. He was showing it in the White House. And at the same time that he was showing in the White House, during the same years, there were all of these uh, heroic servicemen uh, who had returned from World War I where he had sent them. Uh, there was no good reason for us to be there, but he had uh, sent them to World War I. A lot of them were black and they were thinking, well, now we fought for our country. We're going to come back home and uh, enjoy our rights and freedoms. Uh, he had segregated more things in the military and federal government than had been before. He was the first Southerner to uh, become president in a long time and a president of Princeton. Incidentally. And uh, there were riots where, where people were attacking, killing these uh, soldiers. There were race riots all over the country, mostly initiated um, by whites, although there's uh, questions about the details of the history, and people were calling on Wilson to do something about it, and he didn't. Uh, that is, you know, local governments were asking for help sometimes, and he didn't help. Uh, there were no investigations, right? So this is um, this minimizing the South, uh, the, the Confederacy, just buying slavery. It's not just that this happened a long time ago, and now suddenly someone's got up in arms about these statues. There's been a whole tradition of evading and denying this aspect of, uh, of uh, American history while perpetuating real legally mandated injustices against a large segment of our population. And moving against these statues through legal proper means is a part of changing that. And you know, acknowledging that history is a part of uh, fully embracing the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. Someone on Facebook was asking for where I got that quotation from the uh... Daily Picayune. It's cited in a book by Mitch Landrew, former mayor of New Orleans, called In the Shadow of the Statues, page 171, if anyone's interested. Um, but let's, let's pull out one last devil's advocate argument about this, because I have also heard people who've said they agree with most everything we've already said. They even will concede that these are bad figures who fought for a bad cause. But even still, they think that taking down the statues represents some kind of Orwellian attempt to rewrite history that has a kind of totalitarian uh, impulse behind it. And in, given that there is, in fact, a push these days to do what they call cancel culture, we had a webinar about it last week, uh, they see this as continuous with that cultural movement, and that's the problem that they have with it. So one is kind of, is this Orwellian rewriting of history? And then also, how does it relate to the to the so-called cancel culture problem that we've been addressing here recently? I mean, take the first part of it, the relation to history. My view is not that we should try to erase this from history. There's a difference between taking down uh, statues and other memorabilia that are put up to commemorate something and to say this is not worth commemorating and erasing the fact that these statues were up at some time. I think it's important for people to know 
that there's a long standing, I mean, a hundred plus year tradition, or if you want to put it heritage, of, that, of this being celebrated in large parts of the country. And that should not be erased from history, but you can do history, you can report history, you can put things in museums, you can put things in books, you can put all the photographs of where these things were up for people to learn to know about. It. And I think it's important that they know this was part of American history, but it, you're, it's, you're just so easily blending together the issue of understanding and acknowledging history and celebrating something that does not warrant celebrating and it, that it's a travesty that it has been celebrated. Changing, making something history rather than the present is not erasing history. I mean, this erasing history complaint, it, it, it goes with this preservation mindset, this kind of stagnant mindset that, you know, this town should remain as it was 80 years ago. I should be able to have the same job my grandfather had at the plant, and we should have the same statues up and the same customs forever, regardless of whether they were good or bad. What's good for my granddad is good for me. Uh, but that's not respecting history. Being mired, resistant to growth, uh, doing things because that's how they've always been done is not history, it's not historical, and it's not American. What America is supposed to be about, what its founding is about, is casting aside the mistakes of the past and building something new and better and preserving only what's good about the past. And you preserve for memory everything, but what you actually carry on as the, the monuments you have, as what you do in your day-to-day -day life, as how you live, is the better things. We should be a vibrant society where new things are being built, better ones all the time. And if old things sometimes need to be knocked down to make way for that, either because they're just old and crummy and not that nice anymore, or because they're uh, you know, perpetuating evils, they should be knocked down. Yeah, I think to, to Ankar's earlier point, I think it's really important to distinguish between historical memory and what you actually venerate. You can, you can you can have historical memory without venerating some aspect of your history. Uh, so nobody objected, or at least uh, nobody reasonable that I know of, uh, would have objected to the taking down the statues of Stalin in Eastern Europe or of Hitler in Germany. Uh, to your point about military prowess, Ankar, I mean, there are no statues of Erwin Rommel in Germany today, even though he was an excellent general but he's associated with the Nazi regime, so he's not venerated, and everybody knows about him. Or, or Saddam Hussein uh, after the Iraq war. Uh, so yeah, if I had to name anybody who wanted to rewrite history, it would, it would be those who are defending these statues on the grounds that they represent some kind of nostalgic heritage. Uh, that's independent of the cause of the Confederacy. That actually is an attempt to evade an important fact of history. And as you read the quote, I mean, it's even, the situation's even more bizarre because a lot of these statues put up late 19th, early 20th century are precisely an attempt to rewrite history, that we weren't traitors, that we didn't rebel. That, and so that you're going to keep them up in the name of preserving history, the very thing that was trying to obscure what actually happened. So let's, uh, let's pivot a little bit from statues of Confederate figures to some of the other statues. Now, most of the statues that have come down have been Confederates, but there have been some notable exceptions. I mentioned uh, Washington Jefferson and Ulysses S. Grant. If 
The main reason that we shouldn't venerate these Confederate figures is because they were leaders uh, or uh, of the Confederacy or they supported uh, its cause, uh, fighting to preserve slavery. What about Washington and Jefferson who owned slaves? Should, does that mean that we should not venerate them either? Uh, certainly, that's the reasoning that's been used by some of the, the people who pushed to have these taken down. I think it's wrong to say that the reason we shouldn't venerate them is because they fought to preserve slavery. Uh, it's the reason that they're being venerated is they're fighting to preserve slavery, and that's wrong. If you had somebody who fought to preserve slavery, but also did some totally other thing than that, and there was a monument to them that was totally all about that other thing, then we can discuss, like, did the good of that other thing outweigh the evil in, in fighting to preserve slavery, and should we still have a monument of them? But, but the worst you would say about the monument is it's in terrible taste. This guy um, made this statue because he... He wanted to show what a great role Lee played in reforming the university of uh, uh, what was Washington University uh, after it was devastated after the war. And he was making amends and so forth. But he, it was really in poor taste because it's uh, blanking out the fact that he was also a warrior to pr uh, preserve slavery. But that's not the case with most of these uh, monuments. It is the case if you're thinking about the name of Washington Lee University. But it's not the case with most of these monuments. It's not that because they fought to preserve slavery, we should take down what would otherwise be a fine monument to them. It's they're being monumentalized for their preserving of slavery. And that is wrong. And that's why it's important to take down the monument. Now, in the case of Washington, Thomas Jefferson, all of these, uh, these kinds of uh, founders who were Southerners and some of them slave owners, uh, and Washington and Jefferson certainly were. Here, nobody, the statues weren't made of them because they were slave owners to uh, commemorate their slaveholdingness or something like that. If there was a statue like that of, you know, Jefferson gallantly whipping a slave or something, that statue would be a monstrosity and should be taken down. But if you have a statue that's commemorating him for writing the Declaration of Independence, for something that's morally good and important and important to the history of the nation, um, that is fundamentally and essentially different. And it's a good statue for a good cause. Now, then you, you can think about, I mean, it's a morally good act to commemorate that the statue, we have to think about how it is as art. But then you can ask, does the fact that he also did this evil thing uh, mean that we shouldn't have a statue of him? And for some people, I think it would. If the guy did something good, but it was pretty minor, and you're ignoring the fact that he also um, was a slave driver, uh, yeah, then I think we shouldn't have a statue. But for people like Jefferson and Washington, who the statues are um, uh, commemorating something profound, uh, historic, of great historical significance, uh, the thing that really is essential to them in the context of their role in history, and that is something that is not um, pro-slavery, uh, and it is the opposite of it in its ultimate historical meaning, that is, I think, fundamentally different. Now, I'll give you an example uh, on the kind of f person for which it's tricky that outside of this issue of, the, of slavery, um, the, Henry Ford, who great contributions to American industry, to the whole manufacturing line, division of labor and so on, um, 
and rabid anti-Semite. And not just sort of, these were his personal views. He did a lot to advance the cause of anti-Semitism. I do think about, so I have, this is sort of an enlightenment tradition that we have replicated at our home in one room. They, uh, Jefferson has that in Monticello, a gallery of worthies. So they put up people, uh, photographs or paintings or whatever of people they admire. And we have a room like that in our house, a number of people. If putting up someone like Henry Ford, I would really think about that. Like this is, you're putting them up. Is it, there is a real achievement there, but there's something really bad there as well. Do you want this up? Now it's a personal decision and it's not a public, I'm not saying we should publicly erect this, but I really think about that. And I've stopped using Henry Ford as a main example of the great industrialist in the late 19th, 20th century. Because I think there are better people who don't have they don't have the real negative that Ford had in pushing the cause of anti-Semitism. And I mean, that did a lot, if you know the history of the 20th century, it did enormous amount of damage to push this, to push this in America and throughout the world. Um, and that's a case where there is a real achievement and you can't deny that there's a real achievement there, but there are also very negative things. And if you're thinking about an assessment of the person and do I want to venerate the person um, you have to think about that. And even if you say, well, I'm just venerating the act of creating Ford Motor Company and so on, it's you can't excuse or you can't turn a blind eye to the other things. I mean, this is the kind of thing about, I mean, you get it even to the extent of Hitler, which is why it's a, oh, but he made the trains run on time. Yeah, but that achievement, that, that can't wipe out what he, all the evil that he did. And so if you're, when you're assessing a person and you're talking about venerating a person, you have to think about these kinds of things. And they're not always easy to figure out like, what is the right view there. So now in the case of Ford, it's interesting. So in the case of Hitler, you're taking somebody who's essentially evil, whose historical role is something really evil, and you're criticizing somebody who would excuse or partially excuse that by pointing to a trivial benefit. In, in the case of Ford, what he's remembered for historically, his main role in history, the main thing about him, if you had to give a one-line bio of him, it's got to be the, the um, Ford Motor Company and the assembly line, and that is a positive thing. So it's, it's not going to be an equivalent to the Hitler case, but it is something that really dims his uh, memory. And it's, if someone does have a, stat, a picture of Ford in their gallery of worthies, you wouldn't think of this person, he's an anti-Semite celebrating anti-Semitism, but you might think, you know, that's insensitive. He's maybe not seeing the full context here. Whereas if he has a picture of Hitler, you know, he has him because he's an anti-Semite. So I ask a question that's based on a number of comments that are uh, coming up on, on mostly on Facebook here. Uh, there are a lot of people who are saying, but look, aren't the people who are opposed to all of these statues uh, right now, including of the founders, because they think these statues represent white supremacy? Uh, and these people are Marxists, and how can how can we even talk about this issue without uh, uh, commenting on their reasons for opposing uh, the statues of the founders? Thoughts on that? Yeah, you're doing their work for them if you don't talk about what's wrong with the Confederacy. If you let them keep up the package deal of Thomas Jefferson and Jefferson Davis, and oh, we've got to knock down all of these statues or have all of them. If you let this moment pass 
And if you've been letting it pass for the past several years, when this has been a major topic of discussion, thinking that Thomas Jefferson and Jefferson Davis are alike in what should happen to the sculptures of them, because some Marxist you don't like thinks that, you are helping the Marxists destroy America. It's essential to America that we differentiate between what's, what's good about our country and essential to the ideas that this country is founded on, the mission of this country, the purpose of this country, what real Americanism is, and treasonous anti-American poison that's been a part of America for too long. And that's always been what has been capitalized by the haters of freedom and capitalism to tear down America and smuggle in other versions of poisonous ideology. And you have to also separate out. So we talked at the outset about the mobs who are taking the law into their own hand and on public property toppling statues and so on. But to think that, so that's one category. It's to be condemned. And I do think a lot of the motivation in that is it is, um, it's, in the, it's anti-American, it's anti-capitalism, it's tear down the system, but the system for them means, includes the real positive elements of freedom uh, that exist in America. So there, but to think that everybody who's starting to wonder about like, why are there so many statues? Why is there so much celebration of the Confederacy? And as I brought, that's part of why I brought up, it's, if you go around, and I'm in Northern Virginia, and you go around, it's all over the place. And the people wondering, like, why is this? And isn't this something, isn't there something problematic about that? To think their motivation, all of these people is they're anti-American and they're Marxist, and that is wrong. So there's, there's a package deal for sure, as Greg was bringing up in terms of the viewpoints, but there's a package deal in also in terms of you take the worst element and then say everybody who's objecting to the statues and so on, shares that same viewpoint. And I do not think that is true. And uh, I mean, I know a lot of people who object to the veneration of the Confederacy. They don't object to Thomas Jefferson or Washington, and they can make that separation. And if you don't acknowledge that those are the best people, that they're objecting to something that is objectionable, but are not following the mob, and okay, then we should tear down everything, they're in the right. And if you're tossing them out um, because because you have a kind of package deal about, well, it either has to be you're on my side or you're on the side of a mob. That's not right. Um, and it, it's, you're losing the best people if you do that. We are getting uh, about 20 minutes uh, close to uh, the end of our webinar. And I know, Greg, you had wanted to say something about Columbus. There might be questions people want to ask about him. But let's start to wrap up and allow for questions. I should mention to those of you who are in Zoom, best way to post your questions is through the Q&A module. Hover over your screen. There's a button at the bottom. That's what I'll be looking at first. Please, if you're on YouTube, don't forget about the possibility of using Super Chat. Uh, let's let's uh, raise this one last question. Should there be any public monuments at all, even of people who are venerable, who are heroic, who we, who we don't even find any major flaws in? Thoughts on that? So I think the, I would make this kind of distinction. Um, there's a, there, it's understandable to have some public 
memorials of things, but particularly in America, I think they should be of, of ideas and historical acts. So the Independence Day, that we celebrate the Declaration of Independence and the principles behind it is different than celebrating a particular figure. Um, and that it, it's that you would celebrate the Declaration of Independence, the ratification of the Constitution, Lincoln's uh, proclamation, freeing the slaves, these particular acts that you view as high water marks in the development of proper government. That I can understand that that it's we would um, memorialize that. When you do it as particular figures, you get into this whole issue. It's are you celebrating the Declaration of Independence and Jefferson is the drafter of that? Or now is it that you have to, um, it's you're celebrating Jefferson and keep in mind like just in political terms, uh, he's on one faction of a, of a real debate just in American politics against the Federalists. And so now is it what, Amer what the government's declaring is, okay, we're on the side of Jefferson and against the Federalists. And so that's very different kind of thing going on. Um, and I would make that kind of separation, which is not made very often. And when you look at the uh, memorials as they go up, the, the Confederate statue that we were talking about is one particular example and a really bad example of trying to um, to commemorate something really bad, but most of these public monuments have a certain ideological agenda behind them. And it's then it's one group pushing this onto everybody. And that I think really should be resisted. And, and Greg, you're muted. You're muted. You could distinguish between public and private monuments or memorials in two senses, right? So for example, Ankar has um, this room of worthies in his house and that's not public in both two senses. He owns it, not the government owns it. And you know he has to invite you over for you to see it. But if he decided to buy a park and erect statues of all those people in it, it would still, and, and have it open to display or he owned a shop and he put them all up or whatever that would be public in the sense that uh, it's not owned by the public, it's owned by him, but he is making a spectacle of it to make a statement. And I think we should have a lot of that in America. I think a lot of people should um, fly their flags in front of their houses. And it would be nice if we had, um, you know, uh, places, and we do have some places in America where people put up statues of people they admire and invite other people to look at it and make a public statement. And if, you know, one of those places ends up having a statue of someone you regard as really evil, I think, you know, you should boycott it, write a letter to them or something like that. Whereas I don't think you should, if you find out one of the people Ankar has on his wall, you think ill of, you know, that's a different matter. It would be weird of you to start pestering him about it. So there's a kind of public memorializing that a public spirited, do it out in the open, try to attract people to see it that I think is really good. And it's a good part of our culture to be done by private individuals, by groups, by organizations to remember the heritage of this or that thing. Um, but um, I think the government doing it, it should be kept to a bare minimum. And I would like to see all the public monuments privatized. Uh, and then we could debate with their owners and people can boycott or support or donate to them. Uh, 
to try to nudge them in one direction or another in terms of who they memorialize. Well, let me wrap up with this before we go to questions, because again, there've been a lot of people in the chat commenting on the Marxist uh, motivation of many of the, the protesters. And I, I think you've both commented on that at this point, but it is interesting that uh, given so many of the, the sorts of people who want to support these statues, given their criticism uh, of Marxism and socialism, you know, the article that Ayn Rand wrote where she has the most to say about what's wrong with socialism, if you go to the Ayn Rand lexicon entry on socialism, most of the excerpts there are taken from an essay of hers uh, called The Monument Builders. And why does the one issue connect to the other? Well, she argues that socialism can't be motivated by a desire for prosperity, progress, or peace because it's been such a miserable failure uh, over the century in, in achieving any of those things. And so she argues it, it has to be instead motivated by a kind of power lust on behalf of the socialist leadership. And very interestingly, she notes that the kind of power lust they're after is not even just the kind that involves a quest for material wealth. Uh, to plunder uh, the citizens. She, she actually thinks that's a, a healthier <laughs> or less unhealthy kind of uh, quest for power lust than the kind which involves a quest for a kind of prestige. And the reason the essay is called The Monument Builders is because she offers as an example of this quest for prestige in the eyes of their victims, uh, the, uh, the example of public monuments that have been erected from the time of the pyramids to uh, to the Soviet Union, I just thought it would be look it would be useful to take a look at the final quotation of this essay, because I think you have to think about her point here when you're thinking about the motivation of the people who put up those Confederate monuments in the first place. And here's what she said: She said, "Now she's talking about socialism, but I think it applies more generally. When you consider the global devastation perpetrated by socialism, the sea of blood and the millions of victims." Remember that they were sacrificed, not for the good of mankind, nor for any noble ideal, but for the festering vanity of some scared brute or some pretentious mediocrity who craved a mantle of unearned greatness. And that the monument to socialism is a pyramid of public factories, public theaters, and public parks erected on a foundation of human corpses with a figure of the ruler posturing on top, beating his chest, and screaming his plea for prestige to the starless void above him. Uh, and there was a mountain of corpses in the South, not just of slaves, uh, but of the 600,000 Americans on both sides who were killed uh, in that war, uh, which did eventually uh, finally bring that institution to an end. So uh, just a few takeaways. Uh, I think some of the things that we've been uh, arguing today include one, Mob action, including toppling statues that should not have been put up, is in fact an evil thing. But it's also evil to commemorate evil, which I think those Confederate statues and symbols do. And if we want to learn from history, we need to be willing to look at the good and the bad in people's characters. If we're going to have those as our takeaways and we're going to have them with the image of Columbus up around them, I think we have to talk about Columbus because otherwise it implies that he's an evil we're commemorating. Yeah, and he's somebody actually asked a question about Columbus, Greg. Uh, Brian asked, what do you say to those who claim that Robert E. Lee is morally equal to Christopher Columbus? Like in both cases, the good outweighs the bad. What would you say to Brian? 
Well, first, there's no good in Lee's case to outweigh the bad, or some trivial, he might have been somewhat good in the Spanish-American War. But the only significant thing he did in history, the only reason why anyone knows this guy's name, is that he fought an evil fight to preserve an evil cause, made even more evil by the fact that he had the opportunity to be on the right side and to have a serious command on the right side. So whatever skill he had, he turned it uh, to evil. He's evil through and through. Um, in the case of Columbus, Columbus's essential role in history is that he took this voyage of discovery and discovered for Europe the Americas, right? He discovered the one continent to the other. And that act of, of sailing out into the unknown when people hadn't done it was an act of bravery. Um, he also had some really um, disreputable acts in his life, some of his treatment of the Indians, and I don't know the history of all of it, uh, uh, Hispaniola and so forth was really bad. But you can debate about what outweighed what. Um, I think uh, given how all peoples encountered other new peoples they were meeting at his time, Columbus's um, sins are fairly typical and his uh, extraordinary feat remained really extraordinary. So I think uh, overall I view Columbus as a figure to be admired. But the meaning of Columbus statues, I think, and the controversy of, over Columbus, I think is actually different than all of these other cases, because I don't think it's really over what the figure did. Like in the case of, of Jefferson you're, or Jefferson Davis or anyone else, you're thinking about this guy did this deed and do we admire it? Or do we think it was a virtuous or a vicious deed? Do we admire it or not? But in the case of Columbus, he's in effect a sim, he set off this massive um, series of events that neither he nor anybody else could have possibly foreseen by connecting these two continents together, uh, which included some, I mean, monumental horrors. I mean, pandemics sweeping across both continents that really wiped out whole peoples in the Americas, and that really caused a lot of sickness, though on a smaller scale in Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, nobody could have predicted that. And then uh, a new civilizations forming and, and great, you know, some of which very bad, like the, um, it, particularly in, in Latin America, or sorry, in, um, in like Haiti, where there were slave colonies doing rum and so forth. And then eventually things like the United States of America and the United States of America in particular forming, which I think is a profoundly good thing. But you can't say Columbus was responsible for that or foresaw it. He did something that was brave and good. And then that led to all of this happening. And I think the way people think about Columbus, they're thinking less about how do we weigh up the positives and negatives of what this man did uh, and what he was about, then they're thinking of how do we think about and understand the history of the two hemispheres coming into close contact, um, uh, something that included a lot of good and a lot of evil, and how do we interpret and understand this 500 years or more of history now? And um, that is, I think, gives him this kind of special or difficult symbolic value. Um, and in the end, I still view him positively and view him as a symbol of something good, but it's a, it's a complex thing. And I don't really think it's about him personally. I think it's about how you understand the last half century. You might have something you want to say on that too, Ankar, but I want to mention that there's a super chat question from Mary Aline, which relates to this issue, which maybe you can speak about as well. Uh, she asks, unlike Howard Rourke, most people are mixed. 
she mentions the example of someone like Margaret Sanger, who was a eugenicist, but she also helped uh, support the spread of birth control. Uh, I know you've given examples, but how can you best decide about a particular individual? I take it she's asking, when a person is mixed, how do you judge uh, which element is dominant? It, it, you have to think what kind of judgment that you're making as well. Is it that you're trying to morally judge the person as if you were around at the time and had to interact with this person? What would you think of their moral character? Um, are you thinking of it in terms of sort of a historical view of what am I celebrating? And those, those are, they're related, but they're not the same. If we take the first, because this is what I think people often are thinking about, about how do you morally evaluate this person? You have to think about the culture in which they live. Um, I think I think Greg brought it up. I forget if you brought it up for Columbus about that he he the sins he committed in dealing with new peoples uh, as he crossed oceans and so are typical of the time. And that's relevant to be thinking about, like, what is the, if a person is, is um, not either morally courageous or, but it's not just an issue of courage. If it doesn't formulate the moral knowledge to think there's something wrong with what I'm doing, um, then it's, he's sort of doing what everybody else did. It's not right what everyone else is doing, but he's not really in a position to know it or fully know it. That's different than thinking about um, someone who, even at the time, you would say that like, he should have known better. This is, he's consciously committing himself to an evil act and perhaps sort of blanking it out in his mind so he's not fully aware of what he's doing. But if he were thinking about it, he should know what he's doing. And in regard to thinking about the founding fathers and slavery, and if you're just thinking of the individual, Jefferson, Washington, I think it's important to think of the whole range of the founding fathers and what did they think about slavery and is it is, say Jefferson's perspective on it, is it sort of, yeah, this is what everybody thought, were there people better about it, uh, if, and there were people like Franklin or Adams, how did Jefferson respond to them when they were making arguments against, look, look slavery's an abomination, what was his actual attitude towards that when he's confronted with the issue knowledgeable people and so and this is if you lived at the time this is how you would think about the issues and if you're judging a person's individual moral character it's not impossible to do but it's difficult and you have to know a lot about the actual facts circumstances the person's actual view how he responds to counter arguments in different positions and that is there's very little of that going on today, I think, when people either celebrate the figures or condemn them, that they're really seriously trying to think about how would I evaluate this? And if I'm thinking of the person at the time, and if I lived at the time, what would be the proper evaluation of this person morally? Um, and it, that it requires careful thinking that people are, they're, they're leaping to side. So there's a real tribalism, I think, in the way people are evaluating right now. Regarding Sanger, I should to, would like to say a word or two also. So she's someone who's primarily remembered. Uh, she's the founder of what became Planned Parenthood. And as somebody who was um, pro um, birth control and education about birth control. And I regard her as heroic in that respect. I have uh, something similar to Ankar's Galleria. Um, a, a set of approbation cards I made as 
placeholders at, at uh, my wedding or my wife and I made with people who did things that we really admired and appreciated and that enriched our lives. And Sanger was involved in raising the funding for um, the research that led to uh, birth control medication. Um, and uh, um, it was illegal to share information about birth control, to teach people how to have sex and not have babies. And she, you know, broke those laws and uh, uh, started really, I mean, really created, um, the way I put it on the card was she uh, helped separate the joy of sex from the responsibility of parenthood. And I think that's a tremendous um, contribution and something that deserves to be admired for. Uh, now she started to get a lot of, um, uh, a lot of criticism from the right and now some elements uh, on the um, Planned Parenthood has taken her name off of some things um, because she was involved in the eugenics movement, uh, which she was. My understanding is it was a pretty peripheral minor involvement. She was looking for different forums in which she could talk about birth control and this was one. Maybe she was involved more than I know. But I think the bigger thing to fault her for, which you won't find any uh, anyone doing is she was a socialist for a fair amount of her life and socialism's uh, really bad. So I think she's someone who uh, has some real bad in there uh, along with some good, but there were a million people who flirted with eugenics and believed in socialism and uh, hardly any of them did the tremendous good she did uh, that we all benefit from. And I think that's the kind of thing, you know, one needs to think about with each of these figures. So we are uh, roughly at time. There have been other questions that have come in. I think we've actually answered a number of them indirectly in some of the material that you guys have already given us. So I think we should, we should start to uh, wrap up uh, completely here. I'm going to close just by mentioning some resources that people can take a look at if they want to follow some leads uh, that we've planted today. Uh, there's a couple of essays in Ayn Rand's book, The Virtue of Selfishness, that are very relevant to what we've talked about today, both her essay on racism, which explains her opposition uh, to that idea, but also The Monument Builders, which I read from earlier. Also, her essay, uh, The Cashing in the Student Rebellion, is related to her opposition to uh, mob violence, uh, and that has implications for the discussion of uh, how public property needs to be administered. I'll also point you to a couple of recent webinars we've done on uh, this channel on New Idea Live. Uh, just last week, I and Ilan Giorno talked about the fuel on the fire of cancel culture. So uh, that's, uh, and one of the things we talk about is, is that uh, some kind of public shaming is rational, some kind is irrational, and you need to make the distinction. That's something that we've talked about today. And then a few weeks prior to that, Ankar and my colleague Aaron Smith had a discussion on, uh, is there a right to mass protest? Uh, their answer was no. And that relates to the question of mob violence that we've been discussing today. So I'll just then uh, mention, if you, if you like New Idea Live and you'd like to follow us in the future, please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit that red button to get uh, to, to be able to follow all the videos we post. And also be sure to click the bell if you'd like to be able to get notifications whenever we post new videos or whenever we go live, uh, like we have done today. And finally, if you have ideas for future webinars or if you have comments you'd like to send us on what we did today, uh, please feel free to send us an email at newideal at einrand.org. We do read all the email that comes in even when we don't respond to it. So we appreciate the messages that you all send us. I think that's all we have for today. 
thanks very much, Greg. Thanks, Ankar. Thanks, everybody, for submitting questions. And sorry we didn't get a chance to look at them all. And thanks for those who contributed also on Super Chat. So we will see you again next week on another episode of New Ideal Live. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.